Great is his faithfulness. Regardless of how this year is ending out for you, we can trust that God is faithful. And you might look at your life and you might say, well, it's kind of hard for me to believe right now. Or, I believe that He's faithful, but I really need Him to answer in this way or that. But regardless of how it goes for us here in this life, we can trust that God is faithful and will one day right all wrongs. And so, brother and sister, God is faithful. Let's pray and we will look at Hebrews. Father, thank you again for this day. And I pray that in this moment for these few minutes that we spend in your word this morning together, I pray that your spirit would be active and powerful as I attempt to exalt your Son, Jesus Christ, that the Spirit would move in our hearts and change our hearts so that we might see Him for who He is and be changed at the deepest level to be more like Him, to obey You more, and to trust more in You. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Verse five, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your comparison, uh, your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? 
May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. So, it will be my attempt this morning to finish out chapter 1, and hopefully that's not a shock to you, as we've spent now six weeks covering the first four verses. Um, But we'll see, and Lord willing, we will do so. So just by way of recap, let's look at this uh, passage. Having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So he became more superior than the angels in the sense that he had to perform this work of purification. And by that work of purification, by doing what God sent him to do, fulfilling the ministry that God sent him to fulfill, it was made obvious. It was made expressed or known to all the hosts of heaven that Jesus is superior. He is preeminent. He is foremost. So Jesus if you will, gained the right to sit at the right hand through his work as the purifying one. We talked about the fact that our needing cleansing is one of the most important ways that we should think about our sin. We have a concept of debt in our culture. Am I right? The idea of being in debt or needing to pay someone back. We have the concept of guilt our justice system, it's the, it's the worst except for all the others, right? It's a really, really good system by the world standards and the history of the world. So we have this concept of justice. But this idea of cleansing, unless you're talking about antibiotics or antibacterial wipes, we don't have this idea of the dirty or the filthy, the unclean. That was a class of people in the first century. And it had been for millennia. We don't have that so much in our culture. And it's a very important image that we need to have to understand what it means for Jesus to save us. That we need purification. We need cleansing before a holy God. And our sin makes us dirty or filthy. We use the story of the prodigal son as an attempt to show the dirtiness that our sin presents, the problem of filth that our sin presents before a holy God. You have the son going out, wishing that the father was dead, getting the inheritance and spending it all, finding himself penniless and feeds the the pigs, an unclean animal, and eats out of the trough with them. That dirtiness, that filth is an image that Jesus uses to communicate what sin and rebellion do, what it looks like to a holy God. We talked about the four different ways, four of the different ways that Jesus purifies us or that he performs his work of purification. He takes on our filth. He takes it on himself. He doesn't just wash us with a rag, as it were. He takes our filth on himself, dying in our place. He destroys the works of the devil He doesn't just write a bunch of new laws prohibiting the enemy from working a certain way in our lives anymore. He destroys the works of the devil. He gives us his righteousness through faith. He doesn't just wipe our slate clean, as it were. We're not a blank slate before God. Jesus, through faith, gives us his righteousness. So all of his holy works are counted or credited to us through faith. 
And also he changes our hearts. He doesn't just forgive our sin. He doesn't just give us his righteousness. He changes our hearts so that we desire to do things pleasing to the Lord. These are four of the ways. There are many others, but these are four ways that Jesus performs his work of purification. Something that we didn't cover last week. We just didn't have the space to talk about its significance, but this is more of an implication of the text. It's not mentioned explicitly, but it says, after making purification for sin, which is made possible by his death, he sat down. So after having been dead, he sits down at the right hand of God, implying he was raised. He didn't stay dead. And now we come to this business about the angels. And at first, if if you're just reading through this, this may be a section of scripture where you might say, well, I don't really know how this applies so much. You know, we'll just kind of skip through this. And the author of Hebrews may have had some intention or the people he was writing to may have had something going on that he's addressing. But this is really important for us as well today. Primarily because... This text isn't about angels. And everything I just read about his superiority to the angel, the point is not anything specifically about the angels. It's about Jesus, namely that he is superior or he's better than the angels. And second, it ties back to what the author has said in verse one long ago, many times, many ways. So he's essentially using the angels as an example of how things are different now. If you read the Old Testament, you can't escape the idea and the impression that God works through angels consistently. Many different angels. We don't know all their names. We have a few names. But he works through different angels at different times, many different ways, visions and real appearances. But now he has spoken to us by his son. So things are different now, primarily because of Jesus' superiority to those angels. The Son of God is the final means of communication from God to man. And there is no new way or different way or means of gaining new information or revelation from God, especially not angels would be the point of the author of Hebrews here. God has spoken to us by His Son now. So this phrase in verse 4, having become, is extremely important. I mean, if you, if you want to, I don't... I get distracted when I take notes, right? And I, I apologize that sometimes I speak too fast for those of y'all who do take notes, but I, I get distracted. I can't take notes. I can't highlight or underscore anything because I, I just start reading and I'm like, oh, that's also in the concordance here. And let's look at this article and read that uh, in the back of my study Bible. So, but if you're taking notes, if you do underline and highlight in your Bible that having become is a very important grammatical statement. It's extremely important to keep in mind as we go through these quotations about the Son's superiority to the angels. As we discussed last week, it's not as if the eternal Son of God were ever inferior to the angels. The point here is that He was not always seen 
or expressed as so much more superior to the angels. The way these quotations read, and what you can catch from certain allusions in the Old Testament, is that the full disclosure of the glory of God in Christ is an unfolding matter. It's not all there for anyone to pick up from day one. This is how Paul talks about it in Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3, 9 through 12. He says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Mystery hidden for ages. Who created all things. So that through the church, who is redeemed by Christ, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access and with confidence through our faith in him. That passage overlays almost perfectly with the majority of the author of Hebrews' argument. This is a mystery. God's glory in Christ is was a mystery hidden for ages in God, but now has been revealed, not even primarily to us in this text, but that through the church, through us, the mystery of God's glory in Christ hidden for ages is now being shown to the heavenly beings. What God is doing through you, brother and sister, is a display of His glory and majesty, not just to the watching world, but to the heavenly hosts, the myriads upon myriads, the 24 elders, the four living creatures. They're watching and they're beholding that mystery of God's wisdom hidden for ages being shown and shining out through what God is doing in Christ through you. And so he says in verse 5, For to which of the, of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. This is from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 verse 7. So already we have an immediate need or reason to remember the context of what we're talking about here. Taken on its face, without keeping the previous context in mind, you could look at this passage and wrongly assume that Jesus was not always the Son of God. You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Right? If you're, if you're just taking that by itself, you've got blinders on, you're just looking at that text, you might think, oh, the author of Hebrews thinks that Jesus was not always the Son of God, and this is where we can get heresies such as adoptionism. Right? That Jesus was a man, and then God essentially made him his son. But that's not what's happening here. This word is used in a metaphorical sense. If you go back to Psalm 2, 
This is a prophecy or a commitment on God's part to the son of David or the line of David. You are my son today. I have begotten you. Most prophecies in the Old Testament, even ones that we immediately connect to the promises about Jesus, have multiple fulfillments. We just came through Christmas time. One of the ones that is cited around this time a lot is the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. The people who received that prophecy that Isaiah was speaking to, it's not like they just received that as an opaque, vague expression and didn't understand anything about it. It was actually fulfilled in that time regarding the king who was to be born. Because that word virgin can be taken two ways, like a maiden, a young woman, or an actual virgin. So you have an immediate, a future, and a final fulfillment of most of the prophecies in the Old Testament. So that is the case with this one as well. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. What day is he speaking about? Connecting that to what we've already seen, and I'm, I'm sorry, there, there are a lot of ideas going on here, and you've got to use your thinking caps today. Having become, this refers to a definite point in time. Having become as much superior to the angels because of his work of purification and his rising from death. He has become much more superior to the angels. So today, this definite point in time, I am declaring that you are, in fact, the Son of God. So think of it this way. This this is how Paul says it in Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Think of it this way. In our minds or in the people who were watching Jesus' ministry, and perhaps even in the minds of the angels as they watched Jesus' life, after Jesus died on the cross, there might have been some question as to whether or not this one was really, in fact, the Son of God. Because if you die and you stay dead, you're not the Son of God. Right? So it's a big question. Jesus died. I mean, that he even tells the disciples that explicitly and they're not understanding it. Like, no, surely this can't happen to you. And then it happens and they all scatter. So it raises the question, is this really the one? So the resurrection, when he walked out of the grave on his own power, I lay my life down willingly and I take it up of my own accord. The resurrection serves as vindication of Jesus as the Son of God. So in this sense, his victory over the grave and subsequent ascension to heaven. So in those things, we see God declaring him as his son. But now now it is obvious. Now it is beyond dispute that the one who said the things he said 
The fact that he died and now is raised, that proves beyond doubt to the heavenly beings and to us, this is in fact the Son of God. Because if you say the things that Jesus said, and you die and you stay dead, you're just a lunatic or a liar. But if you walk out of that grave after having said the things he said and claiming to be who he said he was, you are in fact the Son of God. So on that day when he walks out and when he ascends to heaven, he's declared to be the Son of God. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This is from 2 Samuel 7, verse 14. And this again is referencing a different prophecy, or a different promise or covenant. If you remember the story, David He's king and God has given him rest from all his enemies and he's sitting there in his palace and he says, why am I in a house or a palace and God still lives in a tent, the tabernacle? I will build for God a house. So he tells Nathan the prophet his plan and Nathan says, yeah, go and go and do all your heart's desire. Build God a temple, that's great. And then God tells Nathan, actually, no, David's not going to build it for me because he has too much blood on his hands. His son will do it, but I'm going to make a covenant with David makes a covenant with David that he will never lack a man to stand to sit on the throne and that his, David's descendant, will rule forever. And that's where we get this passage. This is another example of prophecies concerning Jesus having immediate and a future final fulfillment. The Jews in ancient times knew that this covenant with David had to have something more to it than speaking merely about an heir, a physical heir of David's throne, because of that word, forever. And there were no conditions on this covenant. It wasn't, you know, if you continue to obey me, if your descendants continue to obey me, I will keep this promise and you will never lack a man to sit on the throne. God just says, you'll never lack a man. And this one will reign forever. So the author of Hebrews sees this and the Jews in old times knew that this was talking about someone who would come, the Messiah. Verse 6, And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. This is from Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, from the Song of Moses. If you've never read that, Song of Moses, it's pretty much all of Deuteronomy 32. I highly encourage it. We'll actually sing that song in the hereafter. We'll talk about the Song of Moses in the Revelation to John. It's also from Psalm 97, verse 7. It's interesting to note that if you go back to that passage, you read what Moses is speaking about, there's no implicit reference to the Son. There's no implicit reference to a one who would come one day. The verses in both Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 97 are talking about Yahweh, the Lord. So how is it that the author of Hebrews looks back and sees in both of those passages a prophecy concerning the Son of God? Here's what I think is going on. 
both of those texts, if you go to the passage in Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, and Psalm 97, verse 7, both texts deal with or are concerned with physical acts of worship. The idea of bowing down to Him, the Lord. That might have created one day an expectation that there would be a one to whom you could bow down. Because if you think about worship in the Old Testament, they had no image to bow down to. The Ark of the Covenant itself was not meant to be the place where you go and bow down. God did not disclose Himself in an image. All the carved images of the tabernacle were not meant to be the object of your worship. But in both these texts, we have this idea of bowing down to Him. There were some instances where there was a physical manifestation of God, like a burning bush or the man who comes to Abraham. But Jesus is the one who forever will sit at the right hand of majesty and we will bow down to him. And Jesus never discourages that. You have people when they realize who he is, the disciples and the father whose son was healed and many other people, they bow down and worship and he never discourages it. Let all God's angels worship him. Verse 7, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. This is from Psalm 104, verse 4. The point here is that the fullness of the role of angels is that God does whatever he wants to do with them. They're his ministers, and if he wants them to appear as a flame of fire, they will. If he wants them to go out and serve for this or that, they will. He can change their form and expression and their duties to whatever he wants, whatever he desires for his purposes. And it's made more clear in the last verse, but it's even for our sake. But of the Son, he says... So here's the contrast. You have to keep this in your mind, so let's not bury the lead. The whole point of this quoting of all these passages is to show us that Jesus is superior to the angels. So he says, of the angels, he says, he makes them winds and ministers. He makes his ministers a flame of fire. He does with them as he pleases. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And also, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. This is from Psalm 35, verses 6 and 7. And Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. So in the first quotation, uh, verses 8 and 9, the author sees his, this phrase, Therefore God, your God... 
And he sees that as an explicit reference to the Son. David himself is referring to one as God. And then he is saying, your God. And the author makes that connection to the Son of God. In the second quotation, the author sees his role as creator for the reason, of apply, the reason to apply this to the Son. We could go through these quotations phrase by phrase, but that would essentially be revisiting the majority of what we've already said in covering verses 1 through 4. So I don't think that we have to do that. We could, and it would be valuable, but if you don't remember anything that we've said going through verses 1 through 4, you can listen through them online. Uh, the sermons are up online. We don't want to spend another six weeks in chapter 1. Not that it would be bad. Also, these are psalms, and they're meant to be enjoyed as art. So as you look at these, as you read these passages, don't just come to it with cranial, uh, you know, mental categories. Let your heart be moved by what's being said in these passages. You know, never turn your brain off when you're reading anything, but let your heart respond in fullness to what's being said here. So let's try to experience them together the way that they are meant to be enjoyed. So these are the same ideas that we've already looked at in verses 1 through 4, but the author of Hebrews quotes these psalms as a finale if you will. It's not like a fireworks show that they save different fireworks till the end. It's the same fireworks that you've been seeing the entire 15 minutes, but they just put all of them together in a really short burst, right? So that's what's happening with these psalms. Now keep in mind the main argument as well. The angels are glorious. They're majestic, they're powerful. When, when anyone meets them in the Old Testament or the New Testament, they're fearing for their lives. And I like precious moments as much as the next guy, but that's not the idea you get. Okay? These are terrifying beings. Not because they look ugly, because they are so majestic and powerful, and being in their presence wears you down, as it were. So they're majestic, they're powerful, they're glorious, but Jesus is so much more so. So let's read these verses again. I'll try to read them in a way that that gives them the proper due. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of of your hands, they will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will have no end. 
Does it move you to hear that about your Lord and your Savior? Does it do anything in your heart to understand that this is the one who made purification for your sins, for mine? Verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This is from Psalm 101. And as a side note, Psalm 101 is the most important psalm and perhaps the most important section of the Old Testament for the author of Hebrews. It's actually the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. Might be good to memorize it. I'm working on it. It is very important to the argument as we go through these chapters of Hebrews. So, this is a rhetorical question. To which of the angels has God ever said something like this? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So, if you go to Psalm 101, we'll just go there. So you can go ahead and mark it or put a bookmark there. If you read the first verse, the portion that the author of Hebrews leaves off is important. One ten. I'm sorry, I can't type, and I have dyslexic tendencies. It's one ten. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> so, verse one: The Lord says to my Lord, "Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool." The Lord says to my Lord. Who is he talking about? This is the king, David. The Lord says to my Lord. Jesus picks up on this, and in his cleverness, he challenges the Jews' expectation that the Messiah would just be a man. This is from Luke 20, verses 41 through 44. But he said to them, Jesus said to them, how can they say that Christ is David's son? Meaning a physical heir. How can they say that the Christ, the anointed one, is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls calls him Lord. So how is he his son? So Jesus is challenging this understanding that Jesus would come as an heir of his father David only. There must be something more going on with this promise of the coming Messiah. He can't just be the heir of his father David's throne. Again, this whole quotation, this whole uh, course of 
quotations from the Psalms and other places in the Old Testament is to help us understand that Jesus is superior to the angels. We haven't spent much time on this idea yet, though, that all things will be subjected to Jesus. That all of Christ's enemies will serve as his footstool. It's offensive, but you can't faithfully teach or preach or share the gospel unless you include, and dare I say, underscore the truth that all of this is coming to an end. And not just in our personal, physical death. That is a powerful idea in and of itself. And you can preach the gospel or teach the gospel just by saying, hey, you're going to die one day. That's offensive and it's uncomfortable and we don't like to talk about it or think about it, but it's coming. And do you have someone to help you deal with your death problem? That's basically my testimony. I went to Arlington National Cemetery on a tour and I didn't know what those were. All the thousands and thousands and thousands of stones. So I asked the question that, you know, if you will, the children of the Israelites were meant to ask their parents, what do these stones mean? And that idea of death and my mortality just washed over me, and I was afraid. And you can from that seek out a Savior, but the idea here is further than that, is more than that. Because Jesus will return one day and resurrect all flesh. Do not marvel at this, Jesus says, John 5, verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is why you must be in Christ and have His righteousness because you have done evil and I have done evil. The only one who was good ever is Jesus. You must have His righteousness by faith or it will not go well for you, my friend. And it is a misunderstanding and a man-centered view of God that makes this seem harsh. From God's perspective, and whenever you can get a chance in Scripture to see things from God's perspective, you should take it and listen very closely. Uh, go to Matthew 21. Matthew 21, verses 31. Through 40, uh, 33 through 41, rather. Verse 33, Matthew 21. Hear another parable. This is Jesus speaking. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants. And, and he went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. 
And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did to them the same. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. Surely, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants. They said to them, the people listening to this story, they said to them, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. When you think about holiness and judgment and the end of all things from God's perspective, you must try to get out of your heart a man-centered view. It can seem harsh, and it is offensive to modern sensibilities to talk about what will one day happen. But try to see it from God's view and what we have done as the tenants to His servants and to His Son. But, But again, the main argument here is that God isn't going to make the enemies of the angels their footstool. He's going to make the enemies of the Son His footstool. And He hasn't ever said anything like that to any of the angels. Verse 14, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And here the author tips his hand as to what the main point of Hebrews is going to be. His main concern is that those who are to inherit salvation, so you and me, that we actually do endure and persevere to the end. And the angels, as glorious as they are, have been made subservient to that goal. To help us to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. The point here is that what God is doing in Christ in bringing us together as a people to worship the Lord forever, is so great and so glorious that even the glorious angels are sent out to serve and minister for our sake. So, just a few points by way of application. Jesus is greater. And that's, you, you've got to have that in your mind. You have to feel that in your heart for any of what the author is going to say in these following chapters. Jesus is greater. And I don't know the spiritual journey of each of you like I would like to. Many of you may not have an inclination like the Jewish Christians that he's writing to to venerate and to honor angels. You may not have a mind or a heart that desires some kind of heavenly visitation or vision. But that may be the temptation for some. And it's understandable in this context because they are so glorious. But the point here that the author has been trying to make is that you, believer, have in Jesus 
something greater and something better than anything that could happen to you or that you could witness of an angelic nature. And if you haven't gotten that settled in your heart that God's revelation to you in Jesus is better than any other spiritual experience that you could wish for, you haven't gotten the message and maybe I've failed as a communicator. Revisit this text. If you don't treasure what God has done for you in Christ and how he has spoken to you in his son, revisit and meditate on these verses, please. So what about the rest of us? Maybe the majority of us in here don't desire a visitation from an angelic being or a vision. That's probably the majority, I hope. The message here for you is that Jesus is greater than you. In our modern times, post-enlightenment, the temptation is not so much to venerate angels and angelic beings, heavenly beings, as greater than Jesus, but to think that mankind is greater. We have a man-centered view of God and a man-centered view of the gospel. And this is actually a more insidious temptation. There is a for me or for us theological strand that can end in a heretical emphasis. It's kind of pervasive nowadays. You have to be very careful because it is true that Jesus died for us and his offer of salvation is for me. But that's not the ultimate reason for his passion. We talked a little bit about this in discussing the glory of God, that he defers his wrath for his namesake. When Ezekiel is telling the nation of Israel about the new covenant, he's speaking on God's behalf and he said, it is not primarily for your sake that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my name. You can find that in Ezekiel 36, verses 22 through 26. Here's where you should land. This is probably the most important thing to underscore in your heart is that God the Father loves the Son more ultimately than He loves anything else. God the Father loves God the Son more ultimately than anything else. And that includes all of humanity. And that is good news for you and me. Because in Christ, if you have been united with Christ through faith, then that very love that the Father has for the Son is set on you. This is exactly what Jesus prays in John 17. Unite us together so that we would all be one. It's not a secondary or different love that God has for you. It is the very love that he has for his son that he has for you, if you are in Christ. And if we can understand that, if we can rest in that, then we can truly say what Jesus says that we ought to say, that at the end of, the, of it all, after God has used our lives for his glory, we would say, we are but unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty to do? 
Lastly, by way of application, see and savor him. There is no greater goal of ministry than to help you, the people of God, see and love and treasure Jesus Christ. And as you go into this new year, there is no better commitment or goal that you could have for yourself than to see and love and desire Jesus Christ. No ministry objective is greater. No goal is more worthwhile. Nothing will save more marriages. Nothing will cause more repentance. Nothing will motivate you more to serve. Nothing will compel you to share the gospel with your friends more. And nothing is more out of my hands as a man and out of our hands as a ministry staff to cause in your heart. We cannot be the Holy Spirit for you. Our goal is to present him and to exalt him as highly and as majestically as we can and pray that the Holy Spirit works and ignites passion and love for Jesus Christ in you. The whole point that the author of Hebrews is making is the superiority of the Son of God to everything else in the universe. He is the end of all things. This is the great treasure of Christianity. It's not that we have great fellowship. And hopefully we do. It's not that we have great events. And hopefully we have a a great number of those. It's not even that we give help to the poor and needy, though we must do that. It's not that we can help you have your best life now. It's not that we can help you find purpose and fulfillment, though that will happen as you trust and love Jesus. It's that we have Jesus Christ. And He is so great and so worthy that even to be an unworthy servant is better than any other mode of existence. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these men and women. Thank you for your grace towards us that while we were yet sinners, while we were rebels, while we were in our filth, in our shame, in our our hostility to you, you chose by your mercy and your greatness to extend your love in Christ towards us. I pray that we would treasure and honor you as such. And if there is someone in this room, a young man, a young woman, an older man, an older woman who has never come to terms with Jesus, who's never trusted in Jesus, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. I pray that for those of us who do know you, that we would leave with a fresh awareness of Jesus' superiority to all things. We would look forward to the day where all his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. May we be ready for that day. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.